that brings you to that point where now you're, you're ready to hear the Bible. Amen? Nothing like a good trailer to kind of just bring you right to that point of just where you need to be. Amen? Amen. Well, we're, we're in for a treat tonight. Um, you know, it's been said before that, uh, you know, people think, mention about coincidences and then, and uh, they say, well, there's no such thing as a coincidence uh, because God is working in, in all things. And uh, Dr. Heiser being here tonight is, is certainly no coincidence because uh, if you're here at South Coast, you know that we've been, we started Genesis many, many weeks ago. In fact, I just completed the 18th message in Genesis last Saturday night, completing chapter five. And Dr. Heiser is here with us all the way from Seattle, Washington area to teach Genesis chapter six, verses one through five. Wow. I, I'm so glad that he's here. And um, Mike will go anywhere to teach the Bible and to teach this stuff that he teaches out of the scriptures. He even went on a show of a guy who serves the Roman and Greek gods. This is, yeah, this is for real, for real guy. He literally serves the Roman and Greek gods. And he's even here tonight at South Coast Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and there he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ on this completely pagan show. Let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Heiser. Mike earned his PhD in Hebrew, Bible, and Semitic languages at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Mike earned an MA in Ancient History from the University of Pennsylvania and another MA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Hebrew Studies. He also attended Dallas Theological Seminary. Mike's undergraduate degree is from Bob Jones University and also attended, uh, I, I believe, another Bible college as well. Mike is a guy who's been able to, through his scholarship and research, to take his content and deliver it to audiences that may not and often are not familiar with scholarly content. And so he brings it to, you know, just the everyday man. There are three areas of the church. There are your general churches, general church attendees, members of the church. And then, there, then there's another layer of, you know, pastors who are, you know, moderately educated. And then there's the scholars up here. And Mike kind of comes down from this scholarly level and he kind of brings some great stuff right down into the midst of the church. On a podcast called Canary Cry, Mike likened himself to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. And if you remember Gandalf, Gandalf would go around Middle Earth and just kind of stir things up in the various areas. And that's kind of what Mike does. And uh, so... For the Christian who is serious about following Christ and knowing the word, there comes some serious questions when you're reading the text of Scripture. Some serious questions. I mean, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you, you're going to have some questions. There's some stuff in there that's like, what, what's this about? Where, where, I never read this. I never heard about this. What's this about? Well, tonight is one of those passages, and we've got the best in the nation, the best on the earth tonight to, to, to teach it to us. And so I'm so excited about that. 
you, one, of the, one of the questions you might come to is you come to Deuteronomy 3 and you come to this guy named Og of Bashan. And the Bible tells us that his bed was 16 feet long. What do you do with that? How do you, under, how do you explain it? How do you explain six-fingered people that are giving trouble to the Israelites? How do you explain this? Well, tonight we're going to learn a little bit about that. What, how do you explain when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's constantly having to deal with these demons, these disembodied spirits that are just plaguing different areas of different peoples? How do you explain it? Well, tonight, some of that's going to be explained. And so I want you to welcome with a warm South Coast welcome tonight to the pulpit, Dr. Michael Heiser. Thank you. Well, I think my best trick tonight will be not spilling the water on my laptop. <laughs> Let me bring this up here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you made it through the introduction. You still have to wake people up after that. But the trailer helped. <laughs> Actually did. Um, and I'm, all, I'm glad you explained a little bit about the, uh, the Gandalf thing. Uh, I am not Gandalf because I'm a wizard. I, I'm Gandalf for, for precisely the reasons that Charles just outlined. I just make trouble. <laughs> We go from one place to the other, and then we leave. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, it was a good introduction because this is, a, this is one of those strange passages in Scripture. There are a lot of them, and I seem to sort of live in all of them. Uh, just a lot of things that are an endless fascination to me, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to consider a few sort of fundamental ideas here. I'm a believer that all of these strange passages are there for a reason. In other words, it's not random. There's something intentional going on. There's something that we're supposed to, to learn. And it's difficult for us because we're, we're quite a distance removed from the culture of antiquity, especially when it comes to Genesis. And so it's very easy for us to read over things and just sort of, you know, consign them to the weird bin, and then we move on. On one level, that's understandable because, again, we have this disconnect. We, we don't pick up on things that the original writer just assumed the reader would pick up on. We're going to see some of that tonight. But on the other side of that coin, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't use that as an excuse. I mean, there are lots of, of resources and tools at our, at our disposal to try to get into you know, the original context of, of not only this passage, but others. I, I like to illustrate what I try to do this way. You know, we've all done the small group Bible study thing. You know, you're sitting there in a circle, and, you know, you've you got a passage for the night, and you go around the room, and the question is, hey, you know, how did this affect you? What, is, what, do, you know, what does this mean to you? What, do you? what do you think about this or that? If you had an ancient Israelite sitting in the room, somebody from the second millennium B.C., okay, when you got to that guy, or that girl, what their answer would be would be nothing like you'd heard up to that point. In fact, it would probably frighten you because ancient people thought differently about 
the text, you know, as, as we have it, because they're from that time and place. They process it differently than we do. And so one of, one of the difficulties, one of the tasks is to, you know, how can we get the ancient Israelite to live in our head? How can we get the first century Jew to live in our head so that we are able to read something and process it the way the writer intended it to be processed? Okay, that's difficult. And so one of, basically what I try to do is I try to help the Israelite live in your head. And again, the ancient Jew, you know, to try to take scripture for what it is in its own context. The right context for interpreting the Bible is not our context. It's not the Reformation. It's not evangelicalism. It's not Roman Catholicism. You know, just fill in the list. The right context for interpreting the Bible is the context that produced it. And that sounds like it's overly simple, but it's actually pretty profound, and it's something that a lot of people just don't do because it's work, and sometimes the results can be a little scary, and we're going to see Exhibit A right here. Now, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, again, you probably are familiar with the passage, at least some of you. I'm going to read through it, though. And what we're going to try to do tonight is I'm going to try to, again, get the Israelite in your head. How would an ancient Israelite have read this passage? What would it have meant on their terms? And then if we have time, again, if I may get the please cut it off sign, and I'm, I'm willing to live with that. <laughs> uh, it's happened before. No. <laughs> uh, there, there's, it's one thing to understand what, what the, the text meant in their context. It's another thing to see what the New Testament, how the New Testament sort of repurposes it. And so if we have time, we're going to do both, but we're going to do at least the first one. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that, they were, that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, that's kind of a strange passage. Sons of God, human women, Nephilim. You know, the, the, the term really means giants. It does not mean fallen ones like you, you often hear. If you want to know the technical reasons for that, get the book Unseen Realm. And you can, if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, that would be a good, uh, a good solution. <laughs> you can read all about the nuts and bolts Hebrew stuff there. Typically... What we do with this in, in the church, unfortunately, is be afraid of it. Well, I can't really believe that the passage means what it says, because that's just too weird. I can't explain that scientifically. Well, that's nice. How about the virgin birth? You know, what, what's so normal about the virgin birth, honestly? What's the scientific explanation for that? How about the hypostatic union? That's the fancy theological term for the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. How does that work? You know, what's the scientific formula for that? The problem is, though, that a lot of Christians accept the virgin birth and the hypostatic union and the Trinity, you know, these other things. Why? Because they have to. Okay? There's no point in even talking about being a Christian if you don't accept those things. But then all of a sudden, some of this other strange stuff that, again, falls into the same category, this 
this intersection of the supernatural with the natural, all of a sudden that can't be touched. That can't really mean what it says. And so we, we invent explanations for it to make it go away. You know, if we did that with the virgin birth or the Trinity or the hypostatic union, then you'd, you'd call us something else, Unitarians or something, you know. So, so why is that? I, I, I call it selective supernaturalism, and it's something that I really don't have a whole lot of time for because I think we need to be consistent here. We don't have to have, you know, scientific answers for this or that. If you believe in a God and the God of the Bible, he's not bound by that. He just isn't. And if he created a supernatural world, a world of his own, again, making his own character, you know, that's sort of a, a different world than the embodied world, then, then that's a thing on its own. That can intersect with ours in any way that God made it capable of intersecting. All right? it's, it's, not, it's not terribly complicated, but it offends our scientific sensibilities in this day and age. And not only this one, but lots of other ones. Now, there, there's sort of a dominant view of this that you probably have run into, the Sethite view. I'm not going to read you the quotation from the book here. I'll just explain it in a nutshell. The idea is that the sons of God really aren't supernatural beings. They're just people like you and me, except they're, they're bad, they're like ungodly, they, they don't follow the Lord. And so Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is really about forbidden intermarriages between godly people and ungodly people. Nothing more to see here, citizen, move along. Okay, you know, just, that's it. Now there, there are some serious problems with this. Just, I, I'll give you a little grocery list. I use these slides to, to, to do some uh, video teaching content, so some of this will apply, some of it won't. We won't bother to you know, give you the whole grocery list in some instances. But just think about it. it. It requires you to believe certain things. Okay, so only the men were godly at this time, because it just says the sons of God. And they, they, were the, they were the line of Seth. They're the good guys in the biblical story. And so we have to conclude that you know, the women were the bad ones, all right? You know, like, because it doesn't mention any godly women. The, men, the women aren't linked to the line of Seth. It's just the men. And the daughters of women, they're just either hapless or evil themselves, you know. It's just, it, it, it's not a really comfortable position, to be honest with you. It can't explain the Nephilim. Why do you get these sort of odd offspring, you know, these unusually tall people? If, it, if, if all we're talking about is, don't marry people who, who are ungodly or something like that. The text, of course, never calls the women in the episode the daughters of Cain to compete with the line of Seth. It just says they're the daughters of men. And there's no intermarriage prohibition in Scripture before the law. I mean, there, there just isn't. So the, the position is really contrived, but frankly, I think there's a bigger problem. Peter and Jude would not have agreed. That's a more serious problem. Look, if you look at Peter, and, and uh, you know, your pastor told me that he, you, he did a series on 2 Peter not too long ago. You look at the verse. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, then, you know, basically to carry on, he ain't going to spare you either. So he refers to angels that sinned. And he connects it with Noah. Look, there's no other candidate. Peter refers to a group of angels, you know, divine being. Angels aren't just, you know, good guys, okay? Good humans, they're angels. So he refers to a group that sins. What, what else can you look at? 
Well, Mike, what about the, uh, the you know, the, that story about how, you know, Satan fell and he took a third of the angels with him? Maybe those are the, the angels that sinned. You've been through Genesis now for the first five chapters. Where is that story? There isn't any. There isn't a single passage in the entirety of the Bible that teaches that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. The closest you get is in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. There it's the only place it uses the third of the angels language. And the rebellion there is associated with not the pre-flood world, but the first coming of the Messiah. That occurred considerably after the flood. So you don't, you don't have anything to, to, you don't have any ammunition for this. There's really no other candidate. So Peter and Jude are looking at the passage and they're, God forbid, they're taking it for what it says. <laughs> They've committed the crime of letting the text say what it says. They would disagree. They also reference cast them into hell, chains of gloomy darkness. Gloomy darkness. Now, that's something you won't read in the Old Testament either. So where are they getting that? What's that? We're going to talk a little bit about that. It is some, it's an allusion to something that gives us, leads us to the original context of Genesis 6. You look at Jude, he has the same thing. Angels who did not stay within their proper position of authority. He, they left their dwelling. He has kept eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Verse 7, he likens their sin to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was sexual in nature. Again, what other candidate do you have? You got Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So... The real question that I have here at the bottom of this slide, and I think the real problem for the Sethite view or any view that, that just doesn't want to affirm some sort of supernatural thing going on here, is that do you want to interpret the Bible in context or don't you? We spend a lot of time talking about the Bible in context. Everybody likes to talk that. It's sort of taken on a buzzword quality here. We spend a lot of time talking about it, but the, the question really stands, are you serious about that? There is a context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's something that a lot of people aren't aware of, and that's not because Mike is so smart and everybody else is dumb. It's because there's a lot of work that has gone into going back and looking at Mesopotamian material, which is the backdrop for a lot of what goes on in the flood, because, hey, the stories are set in Mesopotamia. That might give us a clue. There's a lot of backdrop information that, that tells us why these verses are even in here. So why don't we take a look at that? Why don't we try to interpret scripture in context and then sort of just let the chips fall? See where that leads us. And that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Now, let's go back, though. I'm going to use Peter and Jude as a springboard. Second Peter's line about casting the angels that sinned into hell. A little Greek spasm here. The Greek word for cast them into hell is actually tartarao. It literally means cast into Tartarus. If any of you maybe had a course in, I don't know, you know Greco-Roman religion, maybe comparative religions or something like that, that term ought to mean something. Tartarus is the place in the Greek Titan story where the Titans, who are rebellious gods, they're not people, Okay, they're, they're divine beings. Okay, this is the place where they are cast for their transgression. Peter uses this term to talk about the angels that sinned in Genesis 6. That's, what, that's what's in Peter's head, there's no mystery to it. 
So, you know, how, why is he doing that? You know, what, where is he getting this? It takes us into that being in prison, chains, and gloomy darkness kind of thing. They're cast into hell. But if you go back to Genesis 6, you don't read anything like that. We just read the passage. Did you see chains of gloomy darkness in Genesis 6, 1 through 4? No, it's not there. Where is he getting that? And how could it possibly be, if it doesn't come from the Old Testament itself, how could it possibly be the case that we have a context in ancient Mesopotamia for, this, for these ideas? How in the world can, can this possibly work? The short answer to where he gets it is the book of Enoch. And you say, well, the Enoch's not in the Bible, so we shouldn't care about it. You know, the cure for that, on one level, <laughs> you don't have to buy my book, uh, Reversing Hermon. It's, 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 a set, it's a different book than Unseen Realm. Reversing Hermon is about how the New Testament repurposes the whole idea of the sin of Genesis 6. And it also shows, I have a whole appendix that's very long, it's dozens of pages, on where, on the places in the New Testament that reference the book of Enoch or some other Jewish book in the same period. The biblical writers read books. Let that sink in. Biblical writers read books. The text of scripture doesn't just drop and download into their brains and then they're, you know, they're, their limbs just start moving and then they start, they write something and they look at it, oh, did I write that? Boy, I can't wait to read it. My brain was turned off when that happened. No, they read books. They were intelligent writers. And Peter and Jude both are picking up on something that is in this book that catch how I'm, how I'm saying this now. There's something in Enoch, lots of things in Enoch actually, but there's something in the book of Enoch that Peter and Jude read and then bring into the New Testament that gives us the ancient Mesopotamian context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Might sound odd. Here you have New Testament guy writing. He's read a book that's around in his day. He sees something in there that helps him express what he's writing in 2 Peter 2 or in Jude. And that thing that he puts into the New Testament is part of a bigger set of ideas that actually tells us why something in the Old Testament was written. It sounds like kind of a leap, but I think you're going to be kind of amazed here. Now, as far as what's going on in the Enoch story, we need to give you a little prep on that. The, the part that Peter and Jude are drawing on in the Enoch story, Enoch is, is a book that is in the intertestamental period. You know, there was, you have the Old Testament history end, we'll use round numbers, 500 BC, you can move it to 400. You know, it's after the second temple was built. But let's, let's go, look, we'll go with 400. 400 BC to, we'll call it 100 AD, even though we could go to 70 AD because that's when the second temple is destroyed. But that's the second temple period, otherwise known as the intertestamental period. In that period, you have people writing lots of stuff. Dead Sea Scrolls were written in that period. Book of Enoch, okay, lots of things going on here. And New Testament writers read that. Enoch's story is the part of, part of the book of Enoch, chapters 6 through 16, is the story of Genesis 6 sort of amplified. You get lots of details. Now, and it's not in the canon. We don't, I don't consider it inspired. But again, it doesn't matter because the, the biblical writers found it helpful. 
to get an idea across. In this story, the sons of God from Genesis 6 are called the watchers. That's actually a biblical term. It shows up four times in Daniel. It's just another term for an angelic being. It means those who never sleep, that kind of thing. So his term for them is the watchers. And in, in Enoch's story, the watchers descend to a place called Mount Hermon. Hermon is a mountain to the north of the promised land. It's right on the border where the allotment to the tribe of Manasseh ends. It's a huge mountain. If you go to Israel today and basically you're anywhere in the country, you will be able to see Mount Hermon. It's the biggest peak in the area. This is the point to which the watchers descend. They come down or either they come down from that location because this mountain was associated with the dwelling place of the gods as far back as ancient Sumer. This is where they hatch their plan. We're going to go down there and we're going to essentially have our way with humanity. It's not just that we're going to do what's described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Enoch expands it considerably, and what the, the watchers do is they teach people essentially how to better destroy themselves. They teach them all sorts of things to increase immorality, to increase bloodshed, to increase warfare, to increase idolatry. This is what they're about. They are God's enemies and God's rivals. They're, they're rebels. This is a rebellion. We're going to go down there and destroy humanity or help them destroy themselves. And so Enoch tells this story. Now, it's a big deal to understand the depravity connection because here's the list of the things that the watchers are supposed to have taught humanity. And all of them have permissible contexts and, you know, legitimate uses. Observing stars, okay, astronomy in and of itself isn't a crime, but what the watchers do is they, they turn people to pagan astrology. There is a biblical astrology, I hope you realize that. Daniel, okay, was one of the wise men, he, he didn't know how to do this. You have dreams, Joseph's dream, he, you know, his family, his, he and his brothers, they were stars and the sun and the moon and all this stuff. You, you have a context for this that's actually really simple in biblical theology. God created the stars. So we believe that since he created stars for you know, times and seasons and all this stuff, God can actually do things up there to telegraph something that he's going to do down here. Real simple. The pagans on the other side said, no, the stars up there, they control your destiny. Okay, like horoscope kind of thing. That the biblical writers were opposed to. The other idea that, well, you know, God might be able to tell us information up there. After all, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. There are actually four or five verbs of communication in that passage for stars. There's, a, there's a, a, sort of an orthodox view of this. And there always has been within Judaism and Christianity. But what the watchers do is, no, we're going to use this to make you idolaters. We want you to worship them. Right? Warfare technology. Again, the ability to make weapons isn't necessarily bad. It's just what you do with them. Okay? We're going to go down there and increase bloodshed. Roots and herbs for spells. Okay? You can have homeopathic stuff now. You can get stuff out of the ground. There are natural methods to do this or that. It doesn't mean you're, you're an evil person. What we're talking about here is really what the New Testament calls pharmacopoeia and its association with idolatry again. Illicit use of drugs, again, to produce altered states, whatnot, all that sort of thing. And then lastly, cosmetics, which is kind of odd 
Again, the issue isn't that there's anything wrong with cosmetics per se, it's that we're going to use this to increase immorality in the population. So these are the things that are actually listed in Enoch as sort of techniques for getting humanity to destroy themselves more effectively. Now that is the backdrop for this verse here. Here's the fifth verse of Genesis. Have you ever wondered after reading all this weird sons of God stuff and then you hit the Nephilim, then you hit this, why this logically follows the other four verses? Look at the verse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a pretty bad indictment, actually. But he's talking about man. In the first four verses, he was talking about sons of God and Nephilim. How does that relate to this? Now we get to Mesopotamia, and Enoch preserves why. Enoch says, again, that part of the story that you don't get in the Bible is that when the sons of God come down and do their thing with the human women and we get the Nephilim and all that stuff, they're also teaching humanity how to destroy themselves, how to become idolaters. That's the part of the story we don't get in the Old Testament. But Genesis 6-5 hints that the Israelite reading the first five verses of Genesis 6 would have made sense of that. In other words, when they get to verse 5, if you're an ancient person, you sort of know why it's there, but we don't. Well, how, how could we make that assumption? There's a backstory. Here's the backstory. In Mesopotamian material, believe it or not, you've probably, if you've gone to high school or college, you've heard that Mesopotamia actually has stories of the flood, okay? Some of that's very similar to biblical material. There's a discussion as to, you know, well, what's going on there. Part of all that complex, believe it or not, is a story that accounts for every element of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That story is about the Apkalu. Let's look at them. This is from a source, Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. The Apkalu were culture heroes from before the flood to the Mesopotamians. Okay, what's a culture hero? What is that? That's academies, you know, academic speak. It means that the Mesopotamians believed that certain divine beings, who's, who they called Apkalu, were the ones who gave humanity the knowledge to create civilization. Okay, we have what we have in terms of technology, we have what we have in terms of ability to feed ourselves and irrigate and build things. We learned that from the gods. Okay, the Mesopotamians believed that the civilization they were able to build was the direct result of divine knowledge dispensed to them by these guys. It's the seven Apkala. There were seven of them in before the flood. They ensured the correct functioning of the plans of heaven and earth, and they taught humans wisdom and craftsmanship and all this sort of stuff. The Apkalu are also described as coming from the watery abyss, the place under the earth. In Mesopotamian religion, again, they have an important job. They're the ones that hold everything in correct balance. Before the flood, again, they give their knowledge to civilization. Their knowledge was important to scholars, Babylonian scholars living after the flood. Because Babylon, the Babylonian you know, leadership, you know, the elite priests and stuff like that, they would say things like, hey, you need to obey us 
because we're really smart and we're the ones that are responsible for making this great civilization and everything we know came from the Aukalu, from this divine knowledge, so you better listen to us. We were the ones that were elite and chosen to receive this knowledge, so we are your leaders. And the Babylonians would say, okay, we're good with that. No problem, we get it. Now the wisdom that Babylon gloried in, that they were thrilled with, that they thought, this is why we are so great. Not coincidentally, corresponds to what Enoch says the watchers corrupted people with. Now the scribes have a problem though. If somebody asks them, well, there's this thing called the flood. So how are you guys saying you're so smart and like you got this, this information from the gods and we ought to obey you, but the Akalu lived before the flood, so like how did you guys get it? Because the flood wiped everything out. Like how does that work? And so the scribes had to answer for this. And in Mesopotamian material, here's the answer. There are texts that actually say this. Before the flood, you have seven Apkalu that were divine. They're the ones responsible for giving advanced knowledge to people. They are the reason Babylon was great. They have a sort of a middle range rank, though. There are gods above them. And those gods don't really like people. <laughs> the Mesopotamian stories actually say they the gods began complaining that people were too noisy, and so the solution to that was to wipe them out in a flood. That's the Babylonian flood story, in a nutshell. We're sick of these people. They make too much noise. Let's get rid of them. Now, when this decision is heard about among in the spiritual world, again, this is Babylonian idea, Babylonian religion, the Apkalu hear about it, and they're appalled. It's like, what do you mean? You know, we've, we've, we've expended all this time and effort into creating human civilization, and the people down there think we're wonderful. And that's kind of, we kind of like that. So we don't really want humanity to be wiped out. But honestly, we're not as big as these other gods, so we're in a heap big, heap big trouble. So they have a decision to make. Okay, how? Flood's going to be bad. How do we get our knowledge that we've given to humans and keep it in circulation in the human race so that after the flood, those that survive will still have it and still be able to build civilization and ultimately to give us the credit? How do, how do we do that? So you have tablets that describe this problem. Before the flood, the Apkalu are described as completely divine. After the flood, after the flood, they are not. After the flood, they are described as being of human descent. There are four of them mentioned. Catch that. Before the flood, we have divine beings. Completely divine. After the flood, we've got sort of semi-divine, quasi-hybrid kind of guys going on. Okay. The fourth of the post-flood, after the flood, Apkalu, is described literally as being two-thirds Apkalu. Guess who else is described as being two-thirds divine? Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is called Lord of the Apkalu. I'll show you the reference here in a second. The implication, though, 
is that the Apkalu decide the way that we keep our knowledge alive is to go down to earth and cohabit with these women. They will have children for us. Those children will be partly us. They'll partly have our brains. They'll partly preserve our knowledge. And that, that will survive the flood. And then, you know, on the other side, it'll be intact. We will save the knowledge of civilization. And so the Babylonians tell this story where you get pre-flood divine, post-flood kind of mixed going on. I have a quote here from another scholar. Again, I didn't invent this view. People who are into Mesopotamian texts, they're all over this. Two-thirds Apkalu, that whole thing. Gilgamesh is important. Why? He is two-thirds divine. He is one of them. He is called Lord of the Apkalu, and he's also a giant in cuneiform and Mesopotamian material. He is called all those things. Gilgamesh shows up by name in the Dead Sea Scrolls in something called the Book of the Giants. Now, we could stop there, and I think we will for the sake of time. Do you see the implications? This is a Mesopotamian story that accounts for every element of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Sons of God, divine beings, cohabit with human women. Okay, you know, again, there was some similar supernatural way to, to understand that. Their offspring are giants. They're partially divine, but partly human. And there we go. There's one thing missing. What about all the stuff that they teach, again, to humankind? Well, again, to cut to the chase, if you actually read this, you know, the book of Enoch, the material, Enoch lists the things that corrupt humanity. We went through that little short list. Those correspond exactly to the things that the Apkalu taught the Babylonians. Now the implication is, is this, that Bab the Babylonians thought these guys were wonderful because they gave us civilization. They're the reason why we are the top. They're the reason why we are the apex of human civilization. What we are has a divine source and it's good because we're on top, we're the best. The Israelites didn't look at it the same way. Why? Because the offspring of this are not coincidentally, you mentioned Og of Bashan. The offspring of the Nephilim, according to Numbers 13, 32, are the Anakim. The Anakim are the Rephaim. Who are the Anakim? The Anakim are the enemy that the, the, the scouts under Moses and Joshua see in the land. They are the reason why the Israelites get scared and turn around and fail. They, the 12 spies come back and say, Moses, you're right, this place is awesome. But there's just a problem. It's filled with Anakim. And we look like grasshoppers next to those guys, and we are going to get our butts kicked. <laughs> so, so let's not do this. And two of the spies say, well, wait, wait a minute. We just parted the Red Sea. I mean, don't you remember that? You know what? This is light work. And 10 of the spies say, no, 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 no. Just, you know, this is kind of creepy. It's just we're going to get killed. So let's just like come up with another plan. Those guys, according to Numbers 13, 32, are related. They come from, literally, that's what the text says, they come from the Nephilim. And you read through Deuteronomy, you read through the, the, the wars you know, of Canaan. That is the mission. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's really the mission of the conquest. How does Joshua define victory in the conquest at the end? He says there are no more Anakim in the land. 
He actually says that. that. That's his definition of victory. There are no more Anakim in the land. We've gotten rid of these guys. Now we can, we can settle the land. So this is a big deal because the very, the very story that the Babylonians thought was wonderful and great and the reason why they're on top is the thing that the Israelites point to and say, this is evil. This is evil. What's produced from this not only results in, again, a certain, certain number of individuals in the land that are just a whole lot bigger than we are and are our mortal enemies, and basically it's us or them. So it not only puts us in that pickle, that situation, but the things that the Abkalu taught people that the Babylonians thought were great actually corrupt us and, and, make, and turn us into idolaters. You know, it, it, it's a mirror image of what's going on. And it actually explains, again, why Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is actually there. Here are the elements. Everything is in there. I should, I should throw this one in before I flip to the other slide. How does the story end in, in Babylon, in Mesopotamia? The opcaller there, hey, we pulled it off, man. You know, we, 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 got, we got essentially, you know, our, our smarts in the, into the human bloodline here, and our knowledge is going to survive. They're going to be okay. They're going to, you know, rise up again in civilization. You know, we dodged a bullet there. Marduk, who is the high god in Babylon, is not happy. He says, look, we were supposed to destroy these people. We don't like them. So what, for what you've done, we're going to cast you, Apkalo, into the abyss to never return again. They're punished by getting sent to hell in Babylonian terms. And that's the element that Peter and Jude pick up on because Enoch records this story. Uh, no, I know it's, it's kind of a, a convoluted, sort of complicated thing, but here's, here we are. Here's where it leads us. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is in the Bible for a specific reason. It is there because the writer assumes that you know the Babylonian story. You know how the Babylonians think. You know that they believe that they are the apex of civilization. They're the best. They have the best gods. They have the greatest gods. They've got the most knowledge. They're just it. And oh, by the way, you know, eventually you know, Babylon's going to be a, you know, a continuing sore spot. You're going to have Nimrod come along. You're going to have, you know, with Og and Vishan, the bed. The, the bed of Og, by the way, matches the dimensions exactly of the sacred marriage bed in the ziggurat of Marduk. It's not a coincidence. Again, it, it's, to make, it's, it's to associate Og of Bashan back to Babylon again. Okay, it's not a coincidence. It's, and I mean exact, like to the cubit. Okay, it, it, it's the same thing. You know, you've got, you've got hooks in, into the book of Revelation. Why is, why is the big bad enemy in the book of Revelation Babylon? Well, it's because Babylon has been bad for a very long time. <laughs> Babylon has a long history of being bad in the Old Testament. It starts here. It's just Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. I mean, it, it's, it's like boogeyman number one. So, the, you know, the, the story, you know, to get back to the point is that, look, all of these things, this story that they look on as, as showing that they were chosen and blessed by the gods is actually a perversion. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is there to tell Israelite readers, look, you, you know this story, you know how the Babylonians are thinking here. But we want you to know, again, God wants you to know, that this whole episode, this act, was a transgression. 
This is a violation of the boundaries between heaven and earth. And the result of the boundaries, and we don't get the list in Genesis, but essentially is, you know, you know what happened here. They didn't just come and, and, you know, produce these Nephilim weirdos. They came here and they taught humanity things that corrupted them so that, again, if we go back to Genesis 6, 5, I'll just quote it, so that every thought of the imagination of the human heart was only evil continually. Enoch preserves the whole backdrop. Genesis does not. Genesis only preserves pieces of it. Enoch tells you the whole story from Babylon, from Mesopotamia, because the people who produced, or the person or individual, who knows who, who actually wrote the book of Enoch. But that's just one example. There are lots of things in this intertestamental period, like the book of the giants that mentions Gilgamesh by name, okay? There are lots of things, lots of stories that, that they're preserving and telling that say, look, this is the original context for what happened in Genesis 6. The Babylonians actually, centuries, millennia ago, had this story, except they thought it was wonderful. The writer of Genesis is saying, it's anything but wonderful. We need to oppose it, we need to know it, we need to understand it, we need to know what we're dealing with here because this is the, this is the thing that, that targeted our existence when it came to the conquest, and it's one of the reasons why humankind is so hopelessly corrupt. If you asked the average Christian today, hey, why is the world the mess that it is? Why are people depraved? What's the answer you're going to get? You're going to get the fall. You're going to get Genesis 3. If you ask the average first century Jew, why is the world the way it is? Why is it so corrupt? Why are, why are people so depraved? That is not the answer you would get. You would get, well, there's three explanations for that. There's a threefold reason instead of one. Modern Christians think one. Genesis 3, fall, that's the end of the story. A Jew would say, well, there's the fall. That's where things got started off. Okay, we have a death problem there. You know, we're estranged from God. We've sinned. The relationship was severed. Now we're going to die. They're kicked out of Eden. We're mortal. We're to, you know, we need resurrection. We need, some, we need eternal life from a different source. I mean, we're in a big, big you know, pickle there. So that's one problem. The second problem, they would say, is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Genesis 3, the fallout there, if you pardon the pun, was death. Humans inherit death. We're all going to die now because we're not, Eden is no more. The Genesis 6 issue is, well, we were estranged from God and, and we could sin for sure because, you know, we did that back in Eden. But we also had God's enemies, you know, enemies from the supernatural world come down here and tell us how to destroy ourselves more effectively. It amped up depravity. It was so effective that Genesis 6.5 says, again, every thought of the imagination of the heart was only evil continually. It was bad. And then the third version, the third reason is something to do with the Tower of Babel. When the nations were disinherited from Yahweh, divorced, essentially cut off from the truth as a punishment. That's why the world is the way it is. That's the answer you'd get from an Israelite or a first century Jew. We got three problems, not just one, we got three. And so the Messiah was supposed to be the person that reversed not just Genesis 3. The Messiah is not here to cure just the, what happened at the fall in Genesis 3. The Messiah is here to cure what happened with the sons of God in Genesis 6. 
And we're not talking about the Nephilim here, okay? They, according to the Bible, depending on whether you're reading the traditional Hebrew text or the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles used, the Nephilim bloodlines die out in either David's time or the time of the prophets. So that isn't what, what the problem is. The real problem is depravity. The Messiah is supposed to be the one who reverses depravity. And third, the Messiah is the one who's supposed to regather the nations into the, back into the people of God, the Gentiles. The Messiah is supposed to do all three of those things. So that's the Jewish expectation. And what I'd like to do, just jumping ahead real quick, is I want, I want to get into something, and this, is going to, this might freak you out more than Genesis 6. <laughs> the, you know, I, a lot of what, what I just said is going to be in the book Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm, the, the subtitle says it all. Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. That assumes that I, I believe it's been lost, and I have. I do. I do think we've lost a lot of the supernatural perspective on the Bible, the way that the ancients would have read it. The follow-up, or a follow-up book, it's not the sequel, is something called Reversing Hermon. And the subtitle is, if I can remember, it's something like Enoch, the Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. It's how the Messiah is cast in stories, in genealogies, in the birth accounts, in what Jesus does where, he goes to certain places and does certain things, how that telegraphs the fact that he is here to reverse what happened at Mount Hermon in Genesis 6. And I'm going to give you one example that ties in with Genesis 6, and you're going to think you're, you're nuts. But believe it or not, it's pretty cool. The theme of cosmic reversal. Now, I'm not going to get into why I think the, the, the birth of Jesus was, again, this open secret. But the Jewish expectation of the Messiah had something to do with, again, the Genesis 6 issue. And I'm going to start in an odd place, Romans 10. Now, what, pay, pay close attention to this, because this is something I know you've all read, and you've probably read right over it. It's easy to do. Romans 10, this is when Paul's talking about how people need the gospel. Simple enough, Paul talks a lot about that. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Good question. But I ask, Paul says, have they not heard? Now you think after the first you know, couple lines there, you'd think, well, no, they haven't heard. That's the problem. You just, you just gave us the problem. How are they going to hear unless somebody goes? But he actually says the opposite. Look at what it says. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. What? For, and now he's going to quote the Old Testament. He has a proof text. He's going to defend himself using the Old Testament. They have heard, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul says, of course they've heard. Don't you know this verse? Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What's he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 19. Look at the text. It's just kind of amazing what he does. He quotes Psalm 19.4. If you look at the whole psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
day-to-day pours out speech. Look at all the, look at all the verbs of speech and, and revelation in this thing. Heavens declare, sky proclaims, day-to-day pours out speech. Night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, that's the Septuagint, Paul's using the Septuagint there. The Masoretic text says their line, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He's saying, look, of course people knew something about Jesus. We're not sure really what what Paul's thinking, specifically what what people could know about Jesus, but he says, look, have they not heard? Sure they have. The sky told them. You say, like, is Paul like just like losing it here? Like, what in the world is he thinking? What in the world is he doing? Well, here's what I think Paul was tracking on. What Paul is actually saying is that there there was something about the sky. Remember, the assumption in in, in Judaism was that God created the the, the heavens, the celestial objects, and all the stuff up there uh, to, to tell us about signs and seasons and appointed times. This is Genesis language. And so the assumption was that God could use those objects to tell us something that's going on. Now, there are evangelicals, both in terms of, you know, a couple centuries ago and even today, that think that this kind of idea means that, you know, we can get the full gospel presentation, like, out of the constellations of the Zodiac. If we read them in order, if we read them in order, we get the full Romans road, the planet. I don't believe that. I think that says far too much. But what I do believe, and what I think Paul is tracking on, is that they could have known that a divine king had been born and that this king was specifically supposed to reverse Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and the Gentile situation. Now, in this presentation, I'm going to focus on just Genesis 6. Here's what I think Paul is thinking of when he says, sure they knew, sure, of course. This is Revelation 12. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of bizarre here. I'm going to ask you to take John at his word. I'm going to ask you to read this passage and assume that John means what he says. I know that's a little radical. A great sign. You know, John's looking up in the heavens. This is what he tells us, you know, in Revelation. You get a whole series of these sky visions where John's looking up at the sky. Here, this is another one. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Does that sound familiar? Anybody read the book of Daniel? Okay, seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars. There you get that third of the angels thing. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman was about to give birth so that, he might, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In other words, the child didn't get eaten, but it does return back to God, okay? Resurrection and ascension. The child is obvious. Okay, the revelation is quoting a messianic psalm, ruling with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. It's obvious who this is. And the circumstances of the birth of who this is, is that. Okay, 12 stars, moon, you know, sun, all that kind of stuff. Now, 
there were a lot of Jews. This is a, this is a Zodiac synagogue from a, or a Zodiac mosaic from a Jewish synagogue. There's a few dozen of these. Well, that means that Mike thinks that the Jews were like idolaters and they were in, you know, into astrology. They read horoscopes. They were like Miss Cleo. That probably dates me. I don't know any really good astrologers now. I just, I just remember Miss Cleo when I was in high school reading the paper, you know, like, what's my horoscope for the day? You know, who should I marry? What job should I take? You know, all that kind of stuff. No, that's not what Mike's saying. There are plenty of zodiac mosaics in Jewish synagogues because they assumed that God had made the stars and not some other God. Okay, it isn't Zeus. It isn't Baal. It isn't any of these flunkies, okay? It's the God of the Bible who made these things. And so we can see them in the sky. We know they're there. We know who put them there. So he might, like, want to just, you know, give us hints about what he's, what he's doing up there, you know, what he's busy on. This is, this is the whole idea. If you actually plot this out, the Revelation 12, in an astronomy program, and I have because here are the screenshots, you see this line right here? Remember Psalm 19 in the traditional Hebrew text? Their line goes out through all the earth. Okay, this is, the line is the ecliptic. It's the imaginary line that the constellations follow. Now, Paul doesn't use that version, but he could have because it, it takes you to the same place. But if you put the, put the ecliptic on there, there we got the moon and the sun. This glob thing right here is the Milky Way, that gray thing going up through the middle. Here are the zodiac signs. The sun is in the midst of which one? The woman with 12 stars at her head. I don't have a, I don't have a, you know, a picture from the Hubble to show you the 12 stars, but they actually are there. It's Virgo. Virgo is the virgin. The sun is in her midst. The moon is at her feet. Here's another shot of her. Sun in her midst, moon at her feet. This is standard astronomical language for the sun being located somewhere in the midpoint of the constellation. Moon at her feet. Now, you'll notice above her head, these are two stars that don't happen to be in John's description. But if you plot it out, this is what is the result. It's an important conjunction to Jews. Remember the Magi? Okay, there were actually people who did this with a monotheistic God of Israel orientation. I, I, I think I'm showing you what the Magi actually saw, the complete picture here. If you saw that conjunction, you thought, oh boy, something big is about to happen. Why? Because Jupiter is the king planet, because it's the biggest one. Regulus was known as the king star because it was the brightest in this region along the ecliptic. They are joined together. At the same time, we've got the sun in the midst of the virgin and the moon at her feet. Now you're interested. Okay, if you're one of the magi, you're interested because this is what you do. You watch the heavens. Okay, the constellation Virgo is the only constellation that represents a woman. For 20 days, Virgo was clothed with the sun. But the exact day when the moon was under her feet could only occur during an 80-minute period within that span of days. You have an 80-minute window okay, for the, all of these things to be present. Now, you'll notice... The conjunction here, this constellation, anybody know what that is above the Virgin, above Virgo? It's Leo. Is the lion a Jewish symbol of messianic royal authority? The answer would be, yeah. <laughs> okay, tribe of Judah, the messianic tribe, there you go. All right. Now, again, 
if you're, the, if you're one of the Magi and you know a little bit about the Hebrew Scriptures, now you're even more interested. What's going on? Now, there are two candidates for the dragon that is below the woman's feet about to devour the child. One is Hydra. Hydra is certainly possible, but Hydra is off the ecliptic. The other, I don't know if I have the picture here. That's a better picture of the whole constellation here. Oh, I don't want to do that yet. If it's not Hydra, I don't have the constellation on here. There's, there's a combination of two right on the ecliptic. It's a combination of the, oh, it's a combination of Libra and then the Scorpio, Scorpion. In, the, in, in antiquity, in Greco-Roman days, that, that was considered one constellation. That was actually called the dragon with claws. Okay, so that might be the better candidate. I don't know. But either way, you've got this whole picture. Now, remember I said you have an 80-minute window in astro astronomical time for all this to be the case? If you, again, plot this into astronomy program, and again, I'm not making this up, the birth of the child with this concatenation of signs occurred at 3 BC on September 11th. Okay, that usually creeps people out because it's September 11th. Now you say, well, 3 BC can't be, you know, what about the death of Herod? You know, Herod, you know, dies a couple years later. And didn't Herod die in 4 BC? That's what all the scholars say. Actually, no, that isn't what all the scholars say. I did a whole podcast episode on this if you want some recent journal articles on how Herod's death can be dated to 1 BC, which would fit this on the basis of Herodian coins and lots of other chronological nuts and bolts, be my guest. Listen to the podcast episode, subscribe to my newsletter, and I'll give you the articles. Okay? Again, that's the first objection that comes up, the death of Herod. It works. Okay, that you're not locked into the death of Herod at 4 BC. So if we have this, here's where it gets really interesting. September 11, 3 BC date also corresponded on the Jewish calendar to Rosh Hashanah, Tishri 1, today the New Year Day. New Year's Day for Jews and the Day of Trumpets. Tishri 1 was also the New Year's Day of the civil calendar according to the calendar accepted in Judah during the divided monarchy. There's a reference to Thiel, the guy who was in the chronology. That is, it marked the first day of the reign of every new Davidic king. What a coincidence. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> Let's talk about Jewish calendar. The first month of the Jewish calendar is, according to the book of Exodus, is Nisan. Nisan falls in the spring when Passover occurs. Now, I'll think about this. After the Exodus, if you read Exodus 12, the Jews changed their calendar to commemorate the deliverance from Egypt at the Passover. They decided to make that month the first month of their year, like, a, like it's a new birth, a new beginning, that kind of thing. So to commemorate their survival from Egypt, their deliverance from the Red Sea and the Passover and all this stuff, they'd actually changed their calendar. Exodus 12 tells us that. Well, the original first month of the year for Jews was not this one. This is the innovation. This is the change in response to Passover. The original first month was actually Tishri. That is the, the original Jewish calendar. Tishri was in the seventh month, which might sound weird. How can you have the beginning of the year, the seventh month? <clears throat> we do this today. We have a calendar year, 
we have fiscal years, we have school years. Okay, we use multiple beginning points throughout the year. This is all that they're doing here. So Tishri was the original first month, and it corresponded with the fall season. Tishri 1, therefore, was the New Year's Day when the year changes. Now, why did they originally put Tishri 1 in the fall? Well, the rabbis taught, again, I don't know if, I don't know if this was what the first people who had calendar were thinking, but the rabbis taught God did that because of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was full of vegetation and food. So naturally, if that's the beginning of the world, the beginning of the year ought to occur at the same time when we have lots to eat. That's why they put it in the harvest season. It makes sense on its own terms. That's why they did it. Now, look at some of the comments about the flood. Now we're back to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the flood narrative. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. So what we gather from this is that Noah was 600 years old and a little bit when the flood began. And it began in the second month, so you know, the, the month after Tishri. So Noah is 600 when the, when the flood starts. Easy enough. Now we know the story, you know, Noah's sending out birds and all this stuff, well, we gotta find land, and they finally do. Bird doesn't come back. And then we read this. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, which of course is Tishri 1, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day, the earth had dried out completely. So the, the, it starts to dry at Tishri 1, again, which brings us full circle, but it really only is done drying. In other words, the flood is only over a little bit later, in the second month. Now, what that means, if you put those two, all those passages together, is that Noah had turned 601 sometime before the earth had dried out, or you know, maybe like a little bit before it was completely dry. Noah had, had had a birthday. Now, early Judaism taught on the basis of what I just read you in Genesis, that Noah's birthday was Tishri 1. Now, if you're a Jew, and you know that, because you've been taught this about the biblical characters, when you read Revelation 12, and you do the calculations, or when you hear someone talk about the circumstances of the birth of this guy named Jesus, and it plots out to him having the same birthday as Noah, what are you thinking? You're thinking, look at the signs, royal birth, kingly birth, line of Judah, king star, king planet. You know, here we have the virgin, virgin birth. We've heard that story about Jesus. It's like, oh boy, there it is again. And now we have a new Noah on the scene. It fuses the Messiah and Noah together in some way. They, it associates the two together. Why is that interesting? What was Noah? Noah was the one who survived the flood. Okay? Noah's survival of the flood and his birthday occurring after the waters had dried out at the end of the flood would have telegraphed something else. God had now judged the earth Okay, we're judging these you know, weirdo Nephilim guys, but also, again, the depravity of humanity. This was God's solution to the total depravity of human beings. 
It had gotten so bad because of the sin of Genesis 6. Now we know from life, from the rest of the biblical story, the problem doesn't go away completely. But now we have a new Noah who will finish the job. We have a new Noah. And there's more. <laughs> Astronomically, the second month in the Jewish calendar, the original one, is marked by the heliacal appearance, appearance over the horizon, the bright point, of the Pleiades. The Pleiades are mentioned actually in the Old Testament. It's a little a cluster of stars. Mentioned three times, there you have the references, Amos 5, Job 9, Job 38. It's always paired with Orion. Hebrew, Pleiades is Kima, Orion is Kassil. And in, in the ancient world, including the Jews, they associated Orion with giants, didn't they? Look at Job 38. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Aramaic translation of this passage says, can you bind the chains of Naphilah? Okay, Naphilah. It's the, it's the singular of Nephilim. This is in the sky when the waters dry up. This is in the sky right after Jesus is born. Again, we have a new Noah on the scene. The, the one who will reverse the effects of what these guys did is here. So, you know, you go to Paul, and Paul's like, you know, could, did, did they not know? Of course they knew. Anybody who's paying attention knows. Okay, they know who's here. Now, that doesn't mean they know the whole story and, you know, what's going to happen. They don't, you know, that... There's an altogether different reason why what Jesus had to do, you know, was, I believe, because I take Paul seriously in 1 Corinthians 2, was deliberately cryptic. It was deliberately hidden from the powers of darkness. They didn't know that the, the whole thing hinged on crucifixion. So the, the, really the plan was to get them to crucify the Lord because that's what you need. You can't have a resurrection. You can't have a cure for death without resurrection. You can't have a resurrection without a death. You've got to have that. And Paul says, had the rulers of this world known what the result would have been, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2. They, they didn't know the details, and neither did the powers of darkness, and the disciples certainly don't know it. I mean, after the resurrection, the risen Christ is standing with them in the room there, and they still don't get it. Well, what are we supposed to do now? You know? and, and Luke actually says that he, you know, he had to open their minds so that they would understand and again, it's, it's easy to pick on them and think they're doofuses. But the fact of the matter is, the plan is never laid out in one place in the Old Testament. It can only be known through hindsight. There is no passage that combines God as man, in, you know, the, the, the incarnation, God as man, and he's going to die, and he'll take away the sins of the world, then he's going to rise again. There is no Old Testament passage that actually spells that out. Say, what about Isaiah 53? Guess what? The word Mashiach doesn't occur in it. Oh, and Jews know that. They'll let you know that real quickly. That's not about the Messiah. The word for Messiah doesn't even show up in there. A lot of Christians are like blindsided by that. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's, that's kind of freaky. No, it's not in any one place. It's, it's hidden in plain sight, but it can only be discerned after the fact. So, I mean, you, you look at something like this, there's a limit to what they can know, but if you're paying attention, 
Paul's right. They could have known. They should have known. The information's right there. The new Noah is here. He is the one who will reverse the effects of this episode. He's here again for three reasons, not just one. So this association with, with Noah's birth is pretty, you know, it, it's, it's important. It's theological messaging. Again, it's the reversal of evil on, on the earth, reversal of the evil of the fallen sons of God, everything that goes with it. And again, the kingdom gets inaugurated during his time. He has to, again, provoke the powers of darkness into killing him because that is the plan. That's what they don't know. This is why when, you know, look at the language here in 1 Peter 3, why, does, why do Paul and Peter half a dozen times, when they talk about the resurrection, you know how we talk about the resurrection, it's like, wow, yeah, I'll have a body there that weighs what I want it to weigh. You know, or I won't have this physical defect, or I'll rise again. You know, we, we, we sort of fixate on getting a new body, and all that's true. Paul fixates on the fact that the resurrection corresponds to the defeat of the powers of darkness. He does it half a dozen times. We wouldn't normally think that. Paul thinks of it a lot. He is tracking on it a lot. And this is part of the reason. So, again, Genesis 6, 1 through 5, fifth verse is important, is a really odd story. It's a really odd episode in, in, in the Bible. And we don't get all of the information in the Old Testament that we would like to get to understand it. Peter and Jude had other information that helped them to understand it. They understood the context for it. What was that other source of information? Oh, it's a bunch of stuff that was written during the intertestamental period that they read, they were familiar with, they found it useful and helpful for them again to process Genesis 6. And that material is important, not because it's in the canon, and it's not in the canon, I don't think it should be, but they read it, they knew it, they understood it, and that material preserves an original ancient context to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 that we can now understand. We can understand why these verses are there. And the message again is, look, the thing that, that those hostile to God thought was great, that made them the apex of civilization, God wants us to know that it wasn't great. It created an immediate threat in the conquest in the form of the Nephilim, and it created a permanent problem in terms of depravity. And the only one who could fix it was the Messiah. And so when the Messiah is born, again, he's expected to be the solution that cures this ill. And if you actually just, again, take John at his word, take Paul at his word, that they could have picked up on this thing. There are things they could have known about the birth event of the Messiah. If they were tracking on that, they had an immediate association with the end of the flood, the end you know, of you know, God's, God's attempted cure of depravity back in Noah's day. And it didn't completely work. It worked temporarily. But now we have one that will provide a permanent solution. And that is the Messiah. All these things are clicking off in their head. But basically we miss it because we either, we either lack a context for Genesis 6 or we demythologize it. We say there's nothing to see here. There's nothing unusual going on. It's just about bad marriages. Hey, it's about a whole lot more than bad marriages. I love it. How many enjoyed that? 
Raise your hand. How many would... <clears throat> How many would come back tomorrow night if Heiser was still here? <laughs> He's not available. <laughs> um, I love that stuff. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know you've heard some of, of the same verses, the same explanations. Um, I did a whole thing on that Revelation 12 and the signs in the heavens. Um, incredible, incredible stuff. You know, we could go on all night. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for coming. And um, 